think that it's a lifelong process. And especially for gay kids, you know, people who've grown up having that experience, like we've just been talking about, you spend years learning to hide that stuff and learning to edit. And I think the rest of your life is a journey of reclaiming that authentic person and putting it out there for the world to see. Hello and welcome to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And this week's guest is Stuart Edmonds from the podcast Unflopped. Stuart is one of the presenters alongside his two mates, Sean Vickers and Joe Heaney. It also just so happens to be one of my favourite podcasts. Each week, they choose two songs from yesteryear which fail to set the charts alight and Joe, based on his expert music knowledge, decides which is to be saved from the annals of music oblivion and therefore unflopped. The podcast has gone from strength to strength since it launched three years ago and is fast approaching its 70th episode. For someone like myself who is a huge pop fanatic and has been my entire life, the podcast is a real treat and it was great to interview Stuart and include his story on this series. The interview was of course recorded during lockdown. I'm working from a self-assembled recording studio in my very very small walk-in wardrobe i'm still getting to grips with recording remotely so hopefully there isn't too much of a dip in sound quality during our interview we chatted about the homophobic bullying Stuart was subjected to in school from his fellow classmates and teachers alike one of his best female friends declaring her love for him during their adolescence coming out to his brother by accident in the heat of an argument, the intense relationship many gay men have with pop divas and lots of other things also. You can get in touch with me by emailing me at johnny at imcomingoutpod.com or tweet me at imcomingoutpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Stuart, welcome to my podcast and thanks for doing the interview. I really appreciate it. How are you uh, this Saturday morning? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, we're, what, week four, I think, of the lockdown. I am... Oddly enough, I was working from home for about four weeks before the lockdown started because we had a flood in our office. So from the flood to the plague, it's been an interesting time. Um, and uh, I'm certainly getting a bit bored of my own company, but I'm OK. So you've had two months now of nearly self-isolating. Well, for the first four weeks, I wasn't self I was still seeing my friends and things in the evening. I just was working from home. So I, in a way, I guess I had a I had a kind of lead-in period where I was allowed to acclimatise. A lot of people went straight from the um, working full-time and seeing their friends to nothing. So at least I had a, a gentle slope into self-isolation. It kind of eased you into it. Exactly. Do you mind it? Are you really, are you quite an extroverted character? Do you need to be surrounded by lots of people? Or is it okay? Do you mind spending a lot of time by yourself? 
I'm fine. I mean, I live alone and I, I'm an introvert. So being at home um, and watching TV on my sofa, that's just fine with me. <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously it's a very weird situation with everything that's going on in the world. But personally, um, I'm okay with it. I'm starting to get a bit... Like, I'd like to hang out with my friends. I really miss my friends. But I'm certainly doing a lot better than most people, I would say. You're healthy. You haven't had any symptoms or anything. You haven't caught it at any point. Nothing. Nothing. And touch wood, none of my loved ones have either. Because I know people who have it, but they're asymptomatic. Oh, how do they know they have it? One or two of them, their parents uh, were GPs, so they got a test. Ah, I think maybe there's a few more tests in Ireland. And I thought last week that I might have had it, even though I've been self-isolating for the last six weeks. I was really lethargic last week and I did feel pressure on my lungs and I I did have a very mild temperature, but it's all gone now. So I never got tested, but it, it is, it's gone. But maybe that, maybe it was some virus of some sort. That's almost stranger when you just don't know uh you know you've been ill but you don't know if that's what it was you weren't tested yeah you know does does that mean you're now got some immunity should you risk it it's a kind of a what they need is the test that tells us whether we've had it or not that would really help yeah i think there's conflicting reports about the immunity so um yeah there's like some people saying you do and some people say you, you don't have immunity afterwards so you could still catch it again yeah it's all very weird very very unsettling all of it yeah, let's start off. We're going to chat a bit about your podcast, Unflopped, which I absolutely love. It's just when I started oh, listening you. to it, it's really comforting because I was a huge chart nerd growing up. I was really obsessed with the music charts and everything. I used to like sit every Saturday, Sunday afternoon writing the, all the charts down in my notebooks. I was that strange. <laughs> It does seem that a huge majority of gay men, not all of them, but the vast majority of gay men do seem to have this incredible passion or obsession with pop music and for yeah. female divas as well. So do you ever analyse that relationship, Stuart? Or why do you think that might be? Yeah, I, I thought about it a bit. I mean, it was definitely in the thinking of when we started the podcast, that special relationship. I actually wrote a little piece about it a a long time ago. But um, yeah, there's something about the fellowship of gay men, the brotherhood of gay men, and that pop music is a real bonding thing. Um, And I think there's a few different reasons. One of them, I think, is that we, you know, certainly of my generation, you know, I grew up in the 80s, there was certainly no way to express my feelings and be myself when I was at school. So when everyone else was, all the kind of straight kids were forming relationships and experimenting and dating, that was something that I couldn't participate in. So when they were all outgrowing those kind of pop songs that talk about, you know, those experiences of finding love and, you know, the fantasy stuff, and they were going out into the real world and doing it, I think for a lot of gay men, we were still closed in our in our bedrooms kind of listening yeah. to those songs and imagining what it might be like. So that's one of the reasons I think there's a real affinity. But also, um, you know, if you think about gay spaces, certainly, again, I'm talking about my generation, pop music was the soundtrack to a lot of our experiences of coming out, you know, going to a gay club or a gay bar, going to a pride festival. It was pop music that was the back track, the backing track to 
meeting our maybe our friendship groups or dating for the first time and bonding with other people like us so i think for that reason it's very dear to us yeah and it's the whole world that goes along with it isn't it all the imagery and the visuals that people like madonna and gaga and kylie create it allows people to escape into it it's the the fantasy that comes alongside it absolutely yeah it's a it's a bright colorful world and if you're growing up especially if you're growing up somewhere that doesn't allow you that it's a nice place to escape to yeah it's an outlet and so when you were growing up were you quite open about your love of pop music or was it something that you tried to suppress I mean, it was definitely something I tried to suppress, but you learn that, like most things, you know, in my experience, you, as a child, you might express something and then observe that it is not acceptable to the people around you. And then quite quickly, you learn to keep that shut up inside, keep it a secret. So I always loved pop music from the from my earliest memories of getting into music. But first single I was ever I ever owned was Super Trooper by ABBA which apparently I demanded my aunt bought me when I was in hospital as about as about four or five years old so you know it's in there right from the beginning good (laughs) taste well I don't even really remember it but I do love that song and it's really because I've known it since I was an infant it's really in me but um yeah I definitely learned pretty quickly when I was at school that it was not really okay for me to be talking about Kylie and Madonna amongst, you know, the kind of school I was at and the kind of boys that were around me. That marked me out as different. So then it became a kind of secret love that I would buy the records and listen to them at home and not really talk about them with anyone at school. But although I did I did develop a little gang of three friends who we really bonded over pop music and we would talk about that stuff. And every single one of them turned out to be gay. Okay. I mean, it's, it's just there. It's just in us, you know. You had your own little gay fr- friendship group at a young age. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know. We certainly didn't talk about it. But I guess we gravitated towards each other because we didn't make each other, you know, we didn't create that uncomfortable situation where there was an assumption that we, we were straight. Like, no one was talking about girls, apart from Kylie and Madonna. <laughs> But there's a real shaming of young boys, isn't there, as well, if they do like pop music growing up. It's like, it's, it is it is really frowned upon. Yeah, I remember, actually, there was a girl at school who I was talking about the song Cherish by Madonna. And I remember just her spitting at me, you're so gay. And thinking, shit, like, that's, it's just a song, but I guess that's not acceptable and... She sounds like a bit of a bitch, was she? <laughs> she doesn't sound um, very pleasant. Honestly, I just I think it's important to practice forgiveness for these people. She was just a product of her environment, and she was well, you're so not much more a rare thing in than me. <laughs> well, I had my fair share of anger, but I've also done years of therapy. <laughs> so get over it. It's far more magnanimous than I am. <laughs> You grew up, as you mentioned there, you grew up in Dundee, Scotland. So what yeah. was it like for what was it like for a gay kid growing up there in the 80s and 90s? I mean, there was nothing and no one, <laughs> in short. Dundee is a, at the time I was living there, was fairly kind of industrial, uh, working class kind of city. There are posh bits, but not many. We were a very kind of average middle class family. 
there's there was one club in town that there was rumours about. So there certainly wasn't much of a gay scene. And then just if you think about the time, you know, there wasn't in the media there wasn't representation that was very positive so yeah. I don't think growing up there was particularly worse than growing up in a lot of different a lot of places but it's a place you know Scotland at that time is was a place where men were men um, I think probably it's still that way in a lot of places and being an effeminate boy like I was was a problem for a lot of people so, and it was perfectly acceptable to make comments about stuff. And, you know, I certainly was bullied quite badly at school. And name, a lot of name calling, one particular name, I was given a girl's name by, by a boy in my class when I was at school. And the whole school started calling me that. And for the whole of my school, my experience in Dundee, before my family moved to Glasgow when I was 15, that was the name. And there were even situations where teachers used that name so it was just, you oh, know, really? it was just acceptable. It was just an acceptable thing. And so it, was that during primary school? No, this or is... it was primary school into... Secondary school. Secondary school. Secondary school. Primary school was pretty happy. I remember a point where kids started to realise that the way I was, because little kids don't care, but as kids get older, they start to recognise that thing. And I remember a point at the end of primary school when the boys around me started to label it what I was. And then that carried on all the way through secondary school until we moved to Glasgow. Kids are just merciless at that they age. Are, aren't they are, but you know, if it's not that, it's something else. Yeah, I had a girl's name as well towards actually the end of secondary school when I was around <laughs> 16, 17, and then it kind of stuck as well. The teachers didn't call me it though. Uh, I don't think I had it quite as bad as you, but it was based on my Irish name was Shanathan, like Jonathan, uh... so the Irish is like Shanathan. And then one guy, my one of my nemeses started calling me Chantel. So, and then that was my name for the last two to three years of school. So I had a girl's name as well. It's funny, I don't talk about the name because I just... Oh, even yeah, I know, though, it might be a bit painful for you to talk about. Well, that's, that's the thing, like, it's years. It's been years and years, but I, it's still scarring because it was such a scarring experience. And I just don't want yeah. anyone to think it would be funny to use it now, even my gay friends because I just don't ever want to hear it. It was that bad. Um, it was, yeah, yeah it was so pretty it's, devastating when I was a child. Yeah, it can be, feel really humiliating at the time, can't it? Mm-hmm. And when I say teachers, I do mean just there was a couple of occasions. It certainly wasn't universal. Um, and I yeah. made my feelings known. I think I terrified a teacher once by walking out of the class. You confronted them about it? No, no, I just walked out of the class when she said it. And she was quite a young teacher, and I think she realised as soon as she'd said it that she'd made a mistake. And the only problem was I'd left my bag in the classroom, otherwise I probably would have left (laughs) it home and caused a bit of an incident. But when the bell rang, I had to go back and get my bag. At that point, she kind of pounced on me and did her best to ease the situation. Did she apologise? Well... I mean, I don't remember wording, but I imagine it was a kind of pretty Patel apology. I'm sorry you feel like that wasn't a nice thing to say. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it would be one. so. I didn't realize it would be so difficult, you know. But she also involved the guidance staff and kind of covered her back in terms of she was the one that went to report it. So I don't know what she said about it. But the the funny thing was, this was the eighties. This was under Section Twenty Eight in the UK, and. I remember there was no doubt in my mind that everyone, all the staff knew that this was was going on. And I remember one guidance 
um, counsellor. Like, no, they were just teachers, but they had that additional responsibility. And it was a woman who I'd never, she'd never been my teacher. And she came up to me one day in the, in the middle of what was called the circulation area, like a big kind of indoor playground, if you like, um, surrounded by other kids and said, oh, I've heard that, um, that you're being bullied. Is that true? Do you want to talk about it? And of course, in that environment, in that situation, I just said, oh, no, no, everything's fine. Because it was so dangerous for me to be seen to be talking to a teacher about what kids were saying to me so it was yeah. just dealt with in the most terrible way and because of section 28 no one could actually say we understand what people are saying to you is there anything you want to talk about you know it couldn't be dealt with properly so isn't it incredible how unprofessional those adults were mm. and how ignorant and, and stupid they were yeah absolutely i mean i think some of them really genuinely cared but they were a bit in a bit of a stranglehold with how they could deal with it. And so you were aware at the time of the existence of Section 28? Oh, no, 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 no. That's years later in hindsight, I see that. Okay, how it impacted your life and mm. your, your school days. Mm. And so when you were at school, my favourite question, <laughs> who were your crushes during the time? So I'm making up for all of my lost youth now. I ask everyone this question. So who did you have a crush on during your school days? You know, I was thinking about this just the other day because um, it was my earliest memory of liking a kind of celebrity. And I don't know how old you are. You might be too young to remember this person, but on Dynasty, the show Dynasty, Dynasty, there was a character called Jeff Colby, He's played by an actor called John James. And I remember, he's really dreamy in a kind of 80s super soap way. And I remember sitting yeah. on the on this chair. I was still, still little enough that I was sitting, sharing an armchair with my mum. And I remember saying to her, if I was a lady, I'd like to marry him. And my mum oh. kind of looking slightly awkward and suspicious what her her young child was saying to her but it was a it was a really pure thought i didn't know that that was a thing that you shouldn't say so it's very genuine and what age were you at that point i mean i must be i must have been six or seven i guess i was an earlier early early developer um in terms of those feelings but um i'm trying to think when i was older who i liked i just i didn't i don't think i went there you know in terms of Crushes. I'm sure I had attractions to people, but I can't remember a later kind of obsessive crush. I just got into my kind of girl pop singers and that was where I put my energy. Okay, so th there weren't any crushes on Take That or anything like that? I mean, I would have liked them. I certainly bought that copy of Smash Hits where they were all in their G-strings. <laughs> Um, oh god I don't remember that one. Oh, there you go it's, it was a, a seminal moment in the life of many young gay men <laughs> it was around the time of that first single the do what you like thing and they you know they were they were being marketed I mean it was clear that now that they were being marketed to gay men but I didn't know that at the time um, but they were all over smash hits half naked yeah take that wearing leather wearing leather and cod yeah, pieces it was quite obvious what market, what audience they were uh, they were pitching it's themselves It's so to. hilarious now. You just look at them and you think, yeah. how did anyone not know? But it was an innocent yeah. time. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> and so who was the first person that you came out to then? Um, I remember telling my brother that I was gay in a, in a fight. My brother and I fought all the time. Not, you know, just like brothers do. 
and it was certainly one of the things he would use to, you know, to attack me. And I don't remember the detail of it, but I remember kind of saying, yeah, I am. I am. So what I am. And he never, he never used it against me again. And he actually became quite supportive in that he, I remember him kind of <laughs> doing revenge attacks on a couple of people at school who'd bullied me. Not a lot, but he kind of stepped in. I would have been like 13, maybe 14. Yeah, something like that. But the point is that when I came out to him, quote unquote, it was not like it started a conversation. We just, we never talked about it again. But I think I just gave him the information. I confirmed it. And then proper coming out was much later. I was probably 17, 16, 17. And it was a girl who, lots of my friends were, were female. And there was this one girl that, I used to get into these kind of really obsessive friendships with girls and there was one girl in particular who became a really close friend really quickly in the way that you can only do when you're a teenager and this was in Glasgow. We were just spent all our time together outside of school and then we we got the same, in the summer between school and university we got the same job in a restaurant so we were together all the time and it's a ridiculous story but one evening she phoned me up and said, I've got something to tell you, but I don't know if I can tell you properly. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you it in code. So imagine like every letter of the alphabet has a corresponding number. A is one, B is two, etc. So she gave me the number code and then hung up. And I had to figure out what the thing that she wanted to tell me was. And the thing she wanted to tell me was, I love you. And I was like, shit, Aww. you know, that's a problem because she's my best mate and obviously I know I'm gay. So I called her back and said, I'm going to tell you something too. And I gave her the code for I'm gay, which in hindsight wasn't the nicest thing to say to some, a girl who's just declared her love for you. And she phoned me up and said, that's the worst thing anyone's ever done to me because she thought I was just saying it to get rid of her. And it took a bit of persuading okay. to tell her that, no, 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 it's really true. And then she... She became my first kind of confidant and and actually she turned out to be gay as well. So there you go. Oh, really? Yeah. And so at first she didn't respond well to it. Well, just in that instant, because, you know, what yeah. she was obviously wanting was for someone to say, oh, I love you too. And for someone yeah, to come back and were say... her feelings <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think she suspected that I just said it to, as a way to, to kind of decline. And actually, yeah. obviously that wasn't the case. So you were around late teens at that time, was it? Yeah, I would have been, I probably would have been 17. Because it was just before I went to university. And then when I went to university, I fairly quickly, within the first year, started to tell people. Did you go to university in Glasgow or? That's right, yeah. The University of Glasgow. So was that your first experience really of the gay scene and gay culture when you went to uni? Well, it was, but I mean, not because of uni. I um, I started telling people and my friends all knew, but I wasn't, I didn't meet any gay people at university. There was a lesbi gay society, it was called, like an LGBT society, but I was far too terrified to go along to anything. It's always been a, like, hated thing for me to be showing up to something where there's no structure and just introduce myself to people. It's like my worst fear in the world. 
So I didn't do that. And all my friends were girls, really. None of us knew any gay people. There was one... There was there were, was a scene in Glasgow, but um, I didn't wouldn't have gone to anything on my own and I didn't have any gay friends. I think I dragged one female friend once to a club and we, you know, immediately left. <laughs> Just out of fear. But what happened was I decided I really needed to meet some gay people. So there was a club in Glasgow that... Had, it was a gay club, but it had a, a student night, like a straight night. And so I'd been yeah. to this club, but only on the straight night. Um, so it felt like, I, you know, it was a cool place. I knew it and it didn't terrify me as much as the kind of unknown side of things. So I phoned them up and asked if I could get a job. I'd, work, I'd done bar work before. And so I got a job in this club. And this was second year of university. And really, it was the first time I was around gay men was like properly in at the deep end because I was working behind the bar in this really popular gay club in Glasgow, Club X, and um, amongst seasoned gay veterans, if you like. Yeah. So it was a real baptism of fire. So was it a real shock to the system at first? Yeah, just, um, you know, the, the kind of vernacular of gay men and there's a... I think a particular kind of gay humour. It was all new to me and it was vicious, but hilarious. I really learned, I don't, not that I particularly claim to be very funny, but everything I know about being funny came from those queens in that club. You know, they would just crack me up. But but woe beside you if you were the, the, the brunt of the joke, because, you know, you'd get a tongue lashing. It was, it was terrifying. And so did you find your... F- place within the gay community quite quickly or did that take some time oh no and I don't think I wouldn't necessarily say I've ever found my place within the gay community but um I I I made some I made some friends and some of those friends are still friends now and I started to develop to develop I guess a sense of self that I didn't have before and an understanding and I, you know, dated a little bit, you know, dipped my toe in that. And um, so it was certainly a positive experience. And so you moved to London then in the early noughties, isn't that right? That's right, 2000. Yeah. So was that because you felt you needed to be somewhere that there was more uh, free and more open? No, I mean, I, it was genuinely a career move because I was living in Edinburgh by that time and I'd been working for a couple of years it's a really and good gay scene in Edinburgh, isn't there? There is, there is a gay scene and it's very different to Glasgow. It's much more of a cafe bar at that time. It was much more of a cafe bar culture than a club culture, which is what it was in Glasgow. But there was a gay scene. And I got involved in a few different kind of... I was involved in Pride in Scotland, which was based in Edinburgh. And so I had a couple of friends, but it, I mean, it, that wasn't the, the motivation. Um, I mean, I I think I always had a bit of a fascination with the big city bright lights of London. And part of that, obviously, is imagine a life I could live. But there was no specific thought to, I want to be where the gays are. Um, it was very much a career move at that point. And so living in London, so you, uh, you've been in London now for quite some time, haven't you? 20 years. Wow. So uh, have you ever, you must have, experienced homophobia during your time in London in your in work or in your day-to-day life have you 
Um, I mean, I would say I think I feel very lucky in that sense because my career, I do fundraising for charities, so um, I've never experienced it at work because, you know, the people who tend to be drawn to working for the voluntary sector tend to be much more liberal and uh, left-leaning. So nothing there. I mean, I honestly can't think of a... An occasion. Because I'm starting to hear more stories in the last few years since Brexit. It seems to have really emboldened a lot of bigots. But that's great to hear that you've had... You I know, mean, had it, no it, might, it might be the case. Um, I certainly hear those stories too. Um, and it's happened to people I know. Um, even people in my neighbourhood, I've had friends visiting who have faced some sort of abuse. I don't know. I, I think that I... First of all, I, how can I say this? I don't walk around in glitter and spangles and sequins in a way that, you know, just because I'm not brave enough to do it, I would, that would attract that kind of attention. But also I'm a big guy with a beard. I live in, in Brixton in South London, which is known for being not a particularly, you know, it can be rough, it can be... I wouldn't say violent, but there's there's crime here. You know, it's a centre for crime. And I've never, ever felt threatened here. Not, ev- not even excluding homophobic violence or threats, even just regular, you know, I've never been mugged. I've, no one's ever attempted to do that. So I do think I send off vibes of kind of stay away from me. You know, I, okay. might, be, I might look more dangerous than I am. So nothing's ever happened to me. Do you look Touch a little words. bit intimidating? Is that it? Well, I don't know. I certainly send out kind of fuck off vibes. <laughs> I've okay. been given that feedback many times, uh, which has not necessarily served me well in my romantic life, but in it yeah. certainly kept me safe. You know what I mean? It's something I do think about that um, brilliant Panty Bliss speech about the things that we learn to edit from ourselves. You know, when I think about that experience of me at school and learning so much about the way I am, the way I naturally behave, being uh, being troublesome for me and attracting the wrong kind of attention, I think I learned over the course of those years to hide those things and to act in a certain way. And on the plus side, that's probably kept me safe. On the the minus side, you know, it means that there's a fear of expressing myself in an authentic way, which I think a lot of us have and is very damaging. Yeah. Do you feel that you check yourself sometimes when you're out in public? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think a lot of it's become automatic now. That's what I would say. So I don't spend my time thinking, oh, don't do that, don't do that. But I know that I behave differently when I'm in a queer space than I do when I'm on the street you know the way I talk the way I move they're all things that you know there's learned behavior when I'm in public for sure but for the most part you do feel like you are leading a life that is authentic for you though don't you uh you know I I just I think that it's a lifelong process and especially for gay kids you know, people who have grown up having that experience, like we've just been talking about, you spend years learning to hide that stuff and learning to edit. And 
I think the rest of your life is a journey of of reclaiming that authentic person and putting it out there for the world to see. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on it. Like I mentioned, I'm a big fan of therapy. I've I'm on a journey, but the journey certainly isn't over. And I I really I find it really annoying when I hear people interviewed those kind of it gets better type things where they talk about their wonderful life. And I just think, you know, no, no one, regardless of whether you're gay or not, gets to a point where everything's sorted. Um, That's not what life is. It's an ongoing no, process. It's, it's a continuum and it goes till the, till the very end. So I yeah. would say that, um, you know, I've, I, I'm happy and fulfilled and um, I'm on a positive journey. So that's all anyone can ask for, I think. Stuart, thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Not at all. Is there another series of Unflopped on the way? We keep doing them. I mean, we've been calling them series, but we've only been taking short breaks between them. So we are continuing as we speak. It's under lockdown. We continue to record and we've, we recently released our 60th episode. Um, so the podcast continues and everyone can find it at unflop.com. I'm sure you'll give the links out. <laughs> I'll add them into the story notes, the Great. show notes. Great. Thanks for your time and enjoy the rest of your Saturday and your lockdown. And you. Good to talk to you, Jonathan. Bye.